Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 16th of January 2023 and this is episode 284. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Heather Jones. Heather is the Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London. Her book is titled For King and Country and explores King George V and the British monarchy during the Great War. This is published by Cambridge University Press. Heather spoke to me from her office in central London. Heather, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and King George V? So I'm, I'm come from originally from Dublin. Um, I've been a First World War historian now really since about 2000, 2001. Uh, from very early on in my academic uh, studies, I decided I wanted to specialise in First World War studies. And I think it is linked to where I come from. Uh, when I was growing up in Ireland in the 1980s, uh, the First World War wasn't really part of, of the history curriculum uh, that we did in terms of Irish history. It was seen as uh, something that, that hadn't really involved Ireland. And yet the landscape was littered with memorials to uh, Irishmen and women who had been in the First World War. So I immediately spotted uh, as, a, as, a, as a, a, you know, a person uh, interested in history that there was, some, there was a bit of a disconnect here. And that got me intrigued into World War I and what, it, what, what had really happened in this conflict. And I haven't really stopped uh, uh, investigating it ever since. So why were you drawn to King George V and why write a book on him? It seems a very crowded field. So I got interested in the British monarchy in the First World War because as I was working on the war, I noticed these very frequent references to monarchist beliefs, to king and country to um, this idea of Britishness linked very much to, to, to the monarchy. I mean, the monarchy is at the core of, of, of the British state. And again, I got very interested in the fact that there wasn't very much written on this idea of a kind of um, understanding of the world in monarchist terms uh, for Britain. I could see lots of studies on Germany and the Kaiser and uh, the way that Germany transitions into a republic at the end of the war. I could see lots of studies again on, on, on Eastern Europe where similar things had happened. Uh, but for the British monarchy, it seemed like it had been rather overlooked, partly because it remains in place at the end of the war, um, but also because I think a lot of people simply took its existence for granted, took it as part of the landscape of Britishness and hadn't really subjected that to any real analysis. Why does this thing matter so much? Why is every source nearly referring to the king, the king's armies, the king's men, um, recruitment posters referring to king and country, etc.? And, and as someone coming from a country that didn't have, you know, the, in, in the Republic of Ireland doesn't have a monarchy and where the issue of, of monarchy is really quite a fraught question around, around Northern Ireland. And um, that immediately made me curious when I, when I moved to live here in, in, in the UK about the strange absence of scholarship on this. Um, many academic historians simply told me, oh, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't really very important in the war, um, which I immediately was very suspicious about because I was finding it in all the sources. And so, so when I went to look, there, there is material on the monarchy, but actually it's much more limited than you would think. So on George V, there are biographies um, by writers, not by historians, uh, figures like Kenneth Rose, Harold Nicholson, uh, who had written very good biographies, but those were quite dated. Um, Kenneth Rose's one was the early 1980s. 
And there was a more recent study by Alexandra Churchill, which was pointing out that actually the monarchy did matter and the king did matter. Um, but it was very focused on George V, not so much on monarchism as a kind of cultural belief that mobilised British people for war. And I wanted to really look at not just the king, but also at British society. What did it understand the monarchy to mean? How did ordinary people respond to the monarchy during the war? Was there really any risk of revolution in Britain during the war? As some, um, some histories that had touched on the history of the Labour Party or the British left in World War I had really made this claim that there was a real surge of anti-monarchism. And again, I was quite sceptical about this and I wanted to look into this in more detail. So that's where the study came from. It was a sense that there was a really big gap here and that what we had was only a partial depiction of actually how British society um, understood monarchy, and maybe believed in monarchy and, and certainly accepted monarchy and in interesting ways in this period. So given sort of, sort of it's been attached or the subject's been dealt with in a very partial way, what have those historians who've looked at King George V and also the monarchy as an institution, what have they said about um, the monarchy and King George V? Or it's a bit of a roundabout question. Well, the historians who'd, who'd worked on this before and um, um, Really, until quite recently, until sort of the last uh, the last ten years, the, the overall view was that King George V was very marginal, a figurehead figure is how I how, is how I describe it. Even Harold Nicholson, um, whose biography is very good and very detailed, uh, I'm not sure why, but he really plays down the kind of the emotional impact of the war on on George V and the scale of the royal family's actual mobilisation for war and their involvement in it. Um, and in political terms, most of, the, most of the studies had focused on the politics and the role of the king politically and had argued that actually it was very minor. Um, and again, I wasn't really convinced by this because once I started looking at the documents, you know, cabinet meetings are discussing the king's views on things. Um, even Lloyd George, who supposedly was the great rebel against the monarchy, um, is, is, you know, sends, sends the king north during a strike wave in 1917 to calm the strike wave uh, because Lloyd George himself is so unpopular with the strikers. Um, he, he decides that actually, that, you know, he should send the royals. And that's an indication of their popularity and their importance. So I, I was very, very sceptical of this claim that actually the monarchy didn't really matter politically. The king was just a figurehead. Uh, it was all very marginal. Now, there has been some more recent his, his, history work that actually helped to trigger, again, my curiosity, uh, which was starting to suggest that actually King George V was more important than had previously been thought. So there was a chapter by Ian Beckett on the king's relationship with his generals. Uh, which looked at sources in the Royal Archive and began to suggest that actually his role in patronage was more important than previous historians had given credit for, and that he had some really important decision-making um, influence on who got appointed to what, that he wasn't just, uh, if you like, um, consulted, that he actually sometimes had a direct input in, 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 in trying to veto um, uh, certain decisions or appointments. Um, and then uh, there was also the study by Alexandra Churchill, which was really important because she had access to sources that no one had had access to before in the Royal Archives. And that study, while it was focused on the king himself rather than British society and, and that interaction with the monarchy, um, it really brought, brought out that, 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 that the monarch was more important than, than academic academic historians had given had given him credit for, uh, for during the war. And I think part of this was, was to do with the, the evolution of the British monarchy itself. So George V is a much more politically involved monarch than, say, Queen Elizabeth II. There has been a transition across the 20th century, and it was hard for historians, uh, particularly historians who were interested in, in, in the social turn in history and the, the role of ordinary people, to actually, you know, make that connection with what the monarchy meant in a much more religious Britain of the First World War, in a much much more Victorian uh, Britain uh, of the First World War. There's still a lot of people who grew up in the Victorian period who, who view monarchy 
you know, very different way during World War One uh, compared to uh, compared to uh, you know our more modern our more modern period. And I think that that the gap is partly from that. It's partly from the fact that historians themselves today maybe found it difficult to imagine a world where monarchy had this awe and this reverence, um, and there wasn't you know this kind of tabloid press tearing them apart, as it were. So let's turn to King George V as a person. How what was he what was he like as an individual, and how did his character shape the way he conducted himself as king, but also as looking I suppose looking at the institution of monarchy. So King George V was was someone who was who was actually quite complex. Um, he sometimes portrayed, portrayed as a a, a, sim, a simple kind of character who liked stamp collecting and spent the First World War stamp collecting. Um, and and there's you know there's a famous kind of Netflix uh, script where they where they talk about uh, George V spending World War One stamp collecting as an indication of how boring he was. And this is really not correct. I mean, this was a man who did like routine, but he had been trained in the Royal Navy. And routine was actually a great virtue of his. He was someone who was very unflappable. He didn't panic. He had very little concerns for his own personal safety. Uh, when he went to visit his troops on the Western Front, he was not in the least put out when, um, when, when he went to places that had recently been shelled. Um, in fact, his advisors were very worried about some of the places he was going to and the time he was spending there. Um, he, was, he was very, very stoic and resilient as a personality. Now, he was also quite gruff. Um, quite frank. Um, he wasn't a tactful man, um, but he was actually very good at talking to ordinary soldiers. And when we uh, look at descriptions that they have of their experience of meeting him when they're wounded in hospitals, when he comes to visit hospitals, um, he's seen as very engaging, someone who's interested in them, someone who spends a long time talking to them. There's a lot of discussion of how long he spends to go through a hospital. He talks to everyone. Um, so while he was blunt and direct. Um, he, was, he, he, he was not someone who, who, who was reticent. He was someone who was quite happy to talk to ordinary people. And that really comes across in a lot of the sources. Um, he was also a devoted husband, um, very loyal to his wife, really relied on her emotionally during the war. Um, and he's also someone who, who, is, who is very dutiful. He has a very strong sense of, of his historic role as monarch. Um, to keep everyone calm, to be the symbol of Britain at war, um, and to, you know, to, to, to kind of allay public anxiety at points in the war that are really very fraught, such as the outbreak of the Ludendorff offensives when it looks like the British front is going to completely collapse. George V goes to, goes, goes to the front um, and is present um, and, and tries to provide a kind of figure of reassurance at both to the troops and to the public by, 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 by that gesture. So, he's, you know, he, he's, he's boring in peacetime may seem, um, you know, sort of... Um, uh, something, something to be to be seen as negative in a monarch, uh, but actually boring in war. Someone who's very steady, very calm, very resilient, very, um, uh, very, 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 very dutiful is actually a really strong virtue in wartime. Um, he wasn't someone who was um, also very keen for the limelight to be on him. He, he, he very much understood his role was one to share the common experience of war. Uh, that the public were going through and so he immediately along with the queen they cut back on all, all 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 the trappings of luxury anything that could be seen as luxurious he's a very different monarch to his father uh, edward the seventh he, he immediately um you know gives up alcohol very early in the war uh, gives up pastry gives up cake they give up all kinds of foods not just alcohol alcohol is the one that everybody knows about but they actually give up a whole range of things they stop going to the theater they give up um any kind of any kind of um going to horse racing anything that could be seen as in any way um, belittling the sacrifice that the soldiers were making, um, and they dig allotments in some of the palace grounds. Um, they wear, the, you know, they, the, the king wears military uniform for the whole of the war. Um, so there's a real sense of 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 him trying to show 
he is he's going through this with 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 the population rather than someone who's 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 uh, you know like the kaiser needs to always have the kind of limelight the spotlight on them and you know he's he's someone who's also very pious and this is often forgotten he he's a he's a very religious man and so is queen mary and their understanding of the war is that this is a trial um that that that, that britain is on the, is 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 you know has god's favor in this trial um against a, a tyrannical and 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 uh, you know even demonic um, a, a Germany that has gone astray. Um, so they see the war in quite biblical terms and that their role is to, um, is to, is, is to serve and obey uh, in a way that what, whatever the, the divine plan has in store and hopefully that, that, you know, that this will lead to a British victory. So he's quite a complex figure. He's not someone who is simply boring and stamp collecting. Uh, far from it, he's putting himself in danger multiple times uh, during the war. Um, and for example, in 1917, when East London is bombed in the first uh, Gotha raids um, in, in June, he rushes there with, with, within hours of that of that attack. Um, while there could still be another attack in the offing, um, he rushes there in, in 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 a motor car to visit the people who've been bombed out, um, and then goes on to the hospitals to visit the victims um, and, and 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 commiserate with their with their with their with their families. It's it's a really you know he's he's doing a lot of very emotionally demanding work in World War One, and only a person who was quite uh, resilient and steady and quite a solid person mentally. Um, could could really manage to do that. Challenges did he face as a monarch during the war? So there are many difficulties uh, that King George V faces during the war. One of the initial problems is there's a wave of romanticising the monarchy when the war breaks out. Uh, they are used very strongly in recruitment campaigning. The symbols of monarchy are used. Um, the slogan for king and country appears everywhere. People buy postcards with it on it. There's there's little um little little um little uh, cards you can put in your window saying a son from this house is serving his king and country, but the, or you can put the name of the person from your home who's serving his king and country in the window. Uh, there's a very strong push to associate the war with the monarchy and romanticize the monarchy. And the danger there is that of course the monarchy can't live up to that. Um, the monarchy itself um is 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 it, you know the, the figures in it that you know they're not they're they're, they're not kind of um, uh, romantic uh, knights on chargers. Sometimes the image of the king in the first year of the war is of him on a, you know on horseback charging etc. You know th this isn't this isn't the reality. So there's a real danger there that the public will get disillusioned um, as the war goes on with this very romanticized monarchy that's been used to mobilize them for war at the start when everyone you know there's a kind of strong sense of of, of support for the war. And um, so that's a real risk, and and the king has to navigate that and try and. Try and present a more sober and more realistic image of, of, of the royal family and what they do, um, and, and does this quite successfully by showing all, uh, by, by getting a lot of press coverage for them going to hospitals, uh, visiting soldiers, inspecting troops going for the front. There's also a real danger that with high casualty rates, the public will turn against the monarchy because they've been so associated with recruitment. And one of the ways they, they navigate this is the, the, the royal family are very quick to be associated with the war dead and with honoring the war dead. And with making sure as well um, that the king's own sons, so his his, his heir um, is, is goes to the Western Front uh, initially for a, for a staff job uh, that, that's quite a safe role, but very rapidly um, uh, Edward, uh, the future Edward VIII, uh, is is kind of slipping his minders and going right up to the front line to quite dangerous positions, and that plays in the in, in the royal family's favour because they, the king has to show that his sons are enduring danger like everyone else's. Uh, as this war goes on, it becomes a very egalitarian type of war effort, and, it's, and, and in a way, the king and queen are quick to read that. They're faster to read that than other monarchies in Europe, certainly, and they're quick to realise that their sons, their older boys, must be serving like everyone else. The second, uh, the, their second son, um, uh, uh, the, the, the future George VI, 
Um, he, he's, he, he, he's in the Navy. He serves in the Battle of Jutland. He's at risk the same as anyone else should his, should his ship be sunk. Um, so there's this very quick sense that, that, that you know, they have to get, a, get, get ahead of public opinion. Um, and they have a very shrewd advisor, Lord Stamfordham, um, who is who is a very, very aware, very well informed, lots of contacts, not just in, in Westminster, but also contacts all across the country that he uses to keep an eye on public opinion and to navigate this changing image of the monarchy from kind of romantic um, recruitment and, 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 and essence of Britishness that men are going to go and die for their king and country, which is the narrative of 1914, 1915, um, to a kind of monarchy of service, a monarchy that is suffering with its people, that is enduring the war with its people, that has given up luxuries, and um, that is hardworking. Um, so that by 1917, you get language in the press of the king as a kind of working man. Um, and we get all the resonances of labour around that. Um, he's a working man. He's putting in a 10 hour day or a 14 hour day um, doing doing hard work, visiting the wounded, visiting, uh, uh, you know, vis 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 visiting the, uh, the war bereaved. And, 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 and this sort of sense of a monarchy um, that is that is resilient because it, it, it is it is actually quick to change its image is one thing that comes out of the war. And the other big challenge is obviously revolution in Europe. And this is the one that has had historical attention in terms of uh, the role of the, the, the king uh, when it came to offering asylum to his Russian relatives, uh, to the Tsar, his cousin, Tsar Nicholas II. Um, uh, but it's, it's a very, the history that had been done is, is, is quite patchy, quite narrow, just focused on, on the February Revolution and whether or not uh, in its aftermath, uh, the, 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 the Romanovs could have come, uh, could have come to Britain. Um, and, and to some extent, we need the bigger picture here. The revolutionary threat is actually wider and longer than that uh, for the British royal family. Um, the revolutionary threat actually starts in Ireland in 1916 uh, with the declaration of an Irish Republic uh, by Porig Pierce on the steps of the GPO, the General Post Office in Dublin. He's declaring a republic. He's declaring that um, the island of Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, is no longer one of the king's, uh, one of the king's realms, as it were. So that's a very radical revolutionary moment. Um, and that's then followed by waves of revolution against monarchism that spread across Central and Eastern Europe, of which Russia is one part. Um, and in this context, uh, George V and the royal family in a way overreact. They are, they, they, they're very quick to start fearing that revolution is, is likely or spreading on the island of Britain itself, whereas actually the monarchy is very, very popular in 1917 and 1918. Um, and an indication of this is that um, is, is, is that when, when we look at the press narratives, it's really only after the February Revolution of 1917 that the people start to actually discuss in the press the royal family's German origins. That's been kind of taboo for the first three years of the war. So it's very late in the war that that starts getting mentioned. And very quickly, the royal family changed their name. Um, so that never really takes off as, as an accusation or a slander against them in the way that it does in Russia against the Tsarina uh, for her German origins. It never takes off because within weeks of it first appearing in, in April 1917, and um, they've changed their name to Windsor. So the revolutionary threat for Britain itself um, is, 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 is read through the lens of what's happening elsewhere. And there's a certain amount of, 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 of royal overreaction and panic around it. Um, and that helps to explain why they refuse asylum ultimately to the Romanovs. Um, bearing in mind, the February Revolution is not the October Revolution by the Bolsheviks. At that point, it, it, it's perfectly, um, it, it would have been perfectly um, uh, understandable that George V would have thought that the Tsar would have got asylum in another country, which is what has happened to the Greek royals. They have gone to Switzerland. Um, so it, 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 at that point, you know, one can't read uh, into that decision in the spring where, where, where the king basically uh, showing political influence again, uh, pressures his, his cabinet to rescind an offer that the foreign office has already made to the Russian uh, royal family to come to Britain. Um, 
that 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 moment of February, we shouldn't read that through October. It's quite questionable. Would George V have made a different decision if he was making that decision in spring 1918? Quite possibly, um, because the, the the risk to the Russian royals in the spring looks very different to the risk uh, that that happens in the autumn. And um, so that revolutionary sweep is, if you like, the other big threat. But when we look at Britain itself, um, the actual core, the you know, the island of Britain, you're not seeing huge amounts of anti-monarchist behavior. You're not seeing royal statues pulled down like you are seeing in Ireland. You're not seeing reels of the royal family being jeered in cinemas like you are seeing in Ireland. You're not seeing um, you know, uh, the, the, the king unable to go to striking areas. The fact that in 1917, Lloyd George sends the royal couple to striking areas in the north of England um, is really, it's staggering. One cannot imagine the Kaiser being sent to a striking area in Germany. In fact, the Kaiser wasn't even really visiting munitions factories in Germany. It would have been impossible to imagine that. Um, so this kind of um, monarchy of the people image that the, the British royals have developed and are cultivating during the war, and this kind of language that they're presenting in 1917 already, you start seeing press language around, they're a democratic monarchy, they're monarchy by consent of the people, they're only there because the people consent to having them. I mean, this is not happening in those other countries where anti-monarchism is leading to revolution in Eastern Europe. So there's a very careful, skillful way the British monarchy adjusts to the war and puts itself um, and it, it, you know, it, 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 into, into new, um, you know, kind of packs itself in new ways um, as the war goes on that protect it and, and, and also that play on its existing popularity. So there's just one thing I would like to add about how the war shaped the monarchy. And it's, it's that this, this language of sacrifice is very important. So there's a sense by the end of the war for the king and queen for king george v and queen mary that 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 large numbers of, of of men have actually have actually died for them have died for king and country or for king emperor and and, and, and country and that is deeply difficult for them to live with um and so there's a sense that ever after the british royal family must now live up to that sacrifice and that's something they instill in later generations there's a sense that people have died now for this institution on a scale that had not happened before. Yes, there had been wars before, but on this scale, this huge scale, national conscription, all of, all of the deaths um, and bereavement, that the monarchy must now live up to that by similarly sacrificing um, for the public good, sacrificing for the privilege of being um, in the role that they're in. So that's a very different understanding of monarchy to the Edwardian period and Edward VII and the way that monarchy is understood. Monarchy now becomes about service, and sacrifice. And that's one of the reasons during the abdication crisis that the Queen Mary gets so angry with, with Edward VIII, um, because she basically, I, I mean, you know, I'm paraphrasing her, her words, but she says, you know, people, people have died uh, for, for, for this country and you can't give up a woman for, for your role. So there's a sense of, of, of sacrifice now is embedded into everything we must do uh, in the future. And that's, and that's very powerful. That leaves a very strong legacy uh, for the monarchy going forward. And as to the question, how did the monarchy shape the war effort? Um, I think that one of the things that's really important to remember is in this period, many, many men going to war actually don't have the vote. Um, their whole idea of Britishness and their whole legal status is, to, is, 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 is as a British subject of the king. And likewise, across the whole of the British Empire in this period, um, the legal status of populations is to be British subjects of the king. So this is an entirely dynastic understanding of identity of Britishness. Britishness is dynastic. It's about loyalty to the sovereign. Um, and it's, 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 the legal category is that you are a British subject. So a, a monarchist understanding of, of citizenship itself. Um, and so the, the relationship with the monarchy is actually the most important relationship that some of these, some of these, these, these men fighting on the Western Front have to, have to the state because they don't have a vote um, at that point. Um, 
And so I think I think understanding that helped us to understand the war effort itself. So the war effort itself, in in legal terms, is being is being waged for uh, for, for for a, mo- a monarchist state. Um, when reparations are paid at the end of the war, they're paid to the, the language is that they're paid to the monarch on behalf of his subjects. I mean, this is this is the understanding. It is entirely monarchist. The whole framework around which the war is understood is monarchist. Um, ultimately, the king is the commander in chief of the armies. He he then delegates that role uh, to the commander in chief in the field. But ultimately, that is that you know that is his symbolic status. Uh, so the monarchy is at the core of this, um, and that helps to explain how uh, going forward, um, the monarchy is so important to commemorating the war. Um, and remember, at the end of the war, you're still seeing for king and country on the tombstones. People are picking this. This term is being put on local memorials that local committees are designing and choosing the words for. So this is not, you know, again, no indication of anti-monarchism here. People are choosing this language. It is still very present. There is still a sense of that these men have died for, for king and country and women who, who, who died as nurses, etc., on the Western Front too. So the sense of, it, of having died for king and country. So I think monarchy um, you know, shaped the war effort in, in, in huge ways. And then in more practical terms, beyond the kind of symbolic and, and legalistic frameworks, um, when it comes to actual decision making, um, if one looks at things like um, the, the, you know, the, the role of Hague and how long Hague remains in this position, the support of the king for Hague is really important there uh, when Lloyd George really would like to get rid of Hague. Um, royal support is key. Um, Hague has the year of the king, and that is really important in, 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 in keeping him um, as commander, commander in chief, because ultimately that is that is you know something that, that, that is in the gift of, of, of the monarch, uh, that particular role. So the king is consulted on military appointments. Um, he doesn't always win out on every one of them, but he has a substantial role in terms of influence on decision-making. His views are always taken into account. So he's, if you like, one of the most important advisors on the war effort that exists in the British state at war. Uh, and again, I think that's been kind of overlooked, uh, partly because of, uh, you know, those, those discussions between the king and the prime minister are always confidential, but partly also because historians, I think, now would find it difficult to understand just how, how important uh, George V was in this period. Which brings us neatly on to my next question. So how was um, King George V regarded by the ordinary man on the Clapham omnibus? How was he viewed in, for instance, Britain, Ireland and the wider empire during the war? So this is interesting because obviously there's no one overall uh, view throughout the war for any given individual. Views change across time. Um, and there's also a sense um, of difference across class, differences across religious, different, different backgrounds. And obviously the empire itself is huge and very heterogeneous. And there are populations within the empire that are quite Republican and quite discontented. Uh, so if one thinks of the South African Boers, for example, who just fought against the British, um, not entirely content, losing their republics and being amalgamated into the new South Africa as part of the British empire. Um, Likewise, uh, French uh, French Canadians, again, a, a, a group of people who are, again, uh, have ambiguous relationships uh, with the idea of the British monarchy and obviously are Irish Republicans who are massively on the rise during this period from 1916 on, ultimately coming to dominate uh, the, 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 Irish nationalist, uh, the Irish nationalist movement. So so there are there are groups who are who are who across the war um, uh, view the monarchy ne- negatively or come to view the monarchy, neg- monarchy negatively. But interestingly, these groups tend not to view George V himself as a person negatively. Um, there is always a sort of uh, view of him as someone who's actually tried to do his best during the war. That, and that's a really interesting thing. Even Irish Republicans um, who, who detest the British monarchy and see it as an imposition on, on Ireland, um, they have a certain sense of George V as actually 
being a really even-handed type of figure. He's been involved in trying to arbitrate in 1914 between Irish nationalists and Irish unionists. And he's made some comments privately about Irish nationalism that are actually relatively uh, fair-minded, even favourable at times. Um, so there's a sense that he's seen as someone who's fair-minded and, and as, an, as an ordinary individual, um, someone who speaks, uh, speaks frankly, uh, speaks his mind, um, as I said, not tactful, sometimes even seen as rude, um, but seen as, you know, where you stand with him. Um, in terms of the ordinary British uh, British person uh, li li living on the island of Britain, um, there's a certain attraction for the celebrity of the royals when, when they're encountered. Um, ordinary munitions workers get excited when they come to their factories because it's a, it, it, you know it's time off work. Uh, you get to see what what the queen is it, it looks like in real life. You get to see what she's wearing. There's a certain kind of excitement around them, a buzz, a celebrity buzz. Uh, but there's also a kind of religious reverence too. And in this period, there is a sense of 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 of, of a kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the king is in this role um, by God's hand, as it were. He has been effectively anointed with holy oils when he was crowned. Um, there's a sense of, of reverence around them, a, a sense of respect, a sense of people being delighted to meet them, but also a little bit in awe, a, a little bit keeping their distance. The one group in British society who are rather irreverent um, uh, uh, more frequently than others is actually upper class aristocrats. Um, and they sometimes have quite cutting things to say about George V as an individual. Um, and they sneer a bit about him as an individual. Again, they have huge respect for the monarchy as an institution, though. They certainly don't want it to disappear. They're certainly not anti-monarchist, but they grump about George V. Uh, they consider him, uh, you know, to be uh, less flamboyant than his father. Um, and and, and you know, from, the, from that point of view, um, they're probably the, the, the king's most critical uh, audience. Um, and then there's the marginal uh, radical left, which is... Um, sort of uh, coalesces around uh, some, some, some London-based groups. They're quite quiet for most of the war, partly due to censorship, but partly due to the fact that in 1914, um, their, their publications fall in popularity. They can't sell as many copies. Um, they realize very quickly that to criticize the monarchy isn't going to win them um, many friends because the monarchy is so popular. So they tend, uh, they tend to be um, uh, come, come out with more criticism in 1917, 1918. Uh, and there's some voices on the labor movement, uh, radical voices saying, for example, they'd like to see the red flag flying above Buckingham Palace. But these are really outliers. Uh, when we look closely at figures like Ramsay MacDonald, they're quite happy to work with uh, the royal family, work with the king and queen. Um, Ramsay MacDonald famously said he didn't see Balmoral as the site, as, 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 as the site of the enemy. Um, and if we look at um, figures like uh, 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 Will Thorpe, who comes back from Russia, um, when he gets back to Britain, the first person who invites him to come, to, to come and see them is, is actually the king. Um, and he, he, you know, he, he rushes to Buckingham Palace um, immediately um, and is worried that he's not wearing the right clothes. And so that, that kind of fear around Thorpe is an indication of the limits, if you like, of British revolutionary feeling. It's hard to think of a Bolshevik being worried about their clothes uh, meeting, uh, meet, 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 meeting, meeting a royal. It's hard to think of them rushing immediately at, at, to, to kind of give an account um, uh, to, to the royals of their visit, you know, kind of their of their of their of their of their of their experiences of Russia, and to go and kind of immediately rush in a taxi uh, to a palace. So, I think I think that's quite important. That sense that even on the left, it is it is a limited it is a limited anti-monarchism. It's not this big anti big revolutionary moment that it has sometimes been portrayed as. Um, when you look at the full picture of British society, it's quite conventional. Um, in the war, quite stoic. Um, there isn't a huge sweep of 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 of, of, of warriorness uh, demonstrations across the country. There aren't things, you know, um, there aren't riots. There isn't, you know, the scale of 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 of, of social upheaval that you're seeing in other countries, and and and, and that also happens around anti-monarchism that is quite limited in Britain during the war. And um, in terms of the empire, it's just so diverse. I don't think I can cover it in much detail, but I think there is a difference between those who are from. 
um, elites and who've been involved in, in the British monarchy before the war and who are traditional elites that are supporting the empire, indigenous elites in India um, and in places, uh, places in, some, in, some, in some, some, some areas of South Africa, kind of there's, there's a, a nascent black bourgeoisie, uh, intellectuals, uh, in some of those groups are actually um, see the war as something that if they support the, the, the war and the king's war effort as they see it, that they will be rewarded with greater independence and autonomy after the war. And they're bitterly disappointed when that doesn't happen. And when actually their wartime monarchism um, and the kind of gestures of that uh, don't pay off in a more liberal, freer, more racially equal British empire at the end of the war. So it's a mixed bag in terms of different places and different views. But within Britain itself, certainly for the British uh, middle classes, um, there's huge support uh, for the monarchy and a certain type of excitement when they turn up somewhere and, and anxiousness about performing right and saying the right things. So what was the legacy of the war for the monarchy during the interwar period? The key legacy overall is that the British monarchy becomes the symbol of war, grief and bereavement. They are they, they become the conduit for um, channeling the nations and, and the empire's grief at war commemorations in the interwar period. And this is particularly obvious when we think about the burial of the unknown soldier. And um, what's really key here is the king unveils the cenotaph and then goes to, to the service to, uh, the, for the burial of the unknown, uh, unknown soldier, unknown warriors, it's also referred to at the time. Um, and the king is, is described as the chief mourner at that service. That's how that service has been designed. It is the king who bows his head before the grave of an unknown soldier, it could be from any class or any background, um, and, and throws, the, the, throws the first soil on the coffin, etc. So they've effectively created a situation where the royal family are being depicted um, as if the, the unknown warrior, who symbolizes all the war dead of the empire, um, is one of them, one of their family. And um, they buried him among the kings as the line on the unknown warrior's uh, tombstone. So this is, this is really clever because this then creates a sense that the war dead of the nation are the royal family's own personal war dead. And that actually the, the royal family then can express the grief of the entire country. Um, and, and, you know, this is a really powerful moment. In Westminster Abbey, many women are wailing, crying. There's extremes of grief at that service. And when you read the press reports um, and, and, and afterwards, when we look at royal weddings that follow on, um, you have the tradition developing of leaving the bouquet um, at the tomb of the unknown warrior that comes straight after that again a symbol that the, the war dead are the royal family's own personal war dead it's their own personal loss and that they will then commemorate that um, and after the war the king goes on a personal pilgrimage as he describes it which is a religious word deliberately chosen to describe how he feels about the war graves um, in northern france um, and goes to visit those war graves to pay personal homage to the war dead so you get an image of a royal family again that is serving uh, that is respecting the sacrifice of the war, that is channeling the, the, the bereavement of, 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 of those who've lost people in the war in a dignified, solemn way, in a, with, you know, with, 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 with feeling. Um, and that's really important because that, that, if you like, takes away some of that anger which could have existed around the way in which the monarchy was used symbolically to mobilise for war recruitment. And the fact that it was, and you know, both during the war and afterwards, described as a war for king and country. So there could have been a backlash around the huge amount of war dead, um, but it doesn't happen. In fact, the royal family has seen itself as respectfully grieving um, the, the people who've been lost on behalf on, on behalf of the nation and treating all the war dead equally, which was a hugely symbolic thing. Um, that it, it, it treats all the war dead and war bereaved in the same way. The war bereaved all get a letter uh, from, uh, from, 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 from uh, effectively from, the, from, from uh, one of the king's advisors, but it, 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 it's designed as if it's from the king himself, uh, expressing the condolences of the king on the death of their loved one. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a very intimate gesture throughout the war. People receive these letters. And again, people receive medals as well directly from the king um, during the war. 
again, a very symbolic act of, of, of honoring their sacrifice, honoring their war sacrifice. So you get the sense that by honoring the war dead, the royal family itself gets some of their honor back onto the monarchy itself. Um, and so there's a really interesting um, legacy uh, that the royal family becomes so associated with war commemoration. Um, and that, that, again, that helps them through this period of revolution across continental Europe. It's a very clever and also, I think, a very genuine uh, move by the monarchy who uh, do feel that these that these people have all died for them. Um, so looking back in retrospect, how would you rate uh, King George V's contribution to the British war effort during the First World War? That's a really great question. I mean, in terms of how I would rate King George V's contribution, um, I mean, obviously it's mixed, right? So on the one hand, um, you know, this is this is this is someone who is um, struggling to adjust to what's a very rapid total war situation, uh, someone who believes in the, in, in the war cause, um, who, who was initially reluctant to go to war, but once Belgium was invaded, swung around to the idea, um, who can have, you know, can sometimes be uh, bad tempered, uh, can, can sometimes be uh, gruff, um, but who overall is someone who works incredibly hard um, on behalf of, of, of both the monarchy, but also on behalf of an idea of Britain, on an idea of Britain that is uh, as, a, as a place that is fair, uh, that is equal to all those who, who, who sacrifice in the war, um, and that is going to become um, a more democratic place. The king during the war really comes around to this, this, this point that it's got to become a more democratic society in the future, that the, the, the franchise must be widened, um, and also comes around to the idea also of, of women getting the vote. Um, so I think, I think that when we look at King George V, um, overall, there's 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 more successes than failures um, in his role in the First World War, um, and particularly also it's important to include Queen Mary here as well, uh, because she is integral in advising him, in steering him, in trying to smooth some of the rougher edges in terms of uh, when when he's reluctant to, to maybe to do particular things, and um, she suggests that actually this would be a good idea and and and, and sensible for the for the monarchy's image. So I think overall his contribution is hugely important, has been very overlooked. And matters not just in terms of what he does, but what people actually believe him to be. And that's really key. What people think the monarchy is there for uh, during the First World War uh, is really important in terms of wartime morale. And interestingly, you do start to get soldiers grumbling about the monarchy on the Western Front in 1918. You start to find accounts where they are, where they are not cheering the king when he goes on visits to the Western Front in some areas, uh, where they're muttering or grumbling. Um, and so... There is, you know, there is this 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 sense that actually his his reaching out and his being present and his efforts um, are really important, and that there, you know, there, there's a sense of um, trying to uh, trying to trying, if you like, to, to act against that uh, that sense of war weariness among the troops and trying to really um, provide them with a sense that, that that you know the king really does actually care about them, and I think that you know that message uh, overall. Is what is what is the is, is a key legacy of the war, and you see it in terms of his silver jubilee and what veterans remember about him after the war. He is remembered positively, and um, those those mutterings of war weariness never grow into anything bigger in in the British Army. They never grow into any big anti-monarchist movement either on the front or at home uh, on on the home front, and that is largely due to the the, the 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 huge effort that he and Queen Mary make to actually go and meet people sometimes visiting three hospitals a day, seeing horrific things, seeing people dying. Um, on several occasions, they see people who are dying. Um, they, 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 you know, the king actually witnesses a number of operations. He's present uh, in, during the Ludendorff offensives at points where the entire medical services have been pushed back. So he actually starts to see people coming straight in from the front in horrific conditions. Um, 
And so that sense of the king being there, people remember that. Um, and that's probably his biggest overall contribution, that he was around and ordinary people encountered him. Um, and that human contact is what they remember. And finally, the most important question, where can people get the book? So the book is available on Amazon, um, and that's the easiest way to, to get hold of it. Uh, it's also available from the Cambridge University Press website. And you can basically ask for it in, in, in any bookshop and they will also add, they'll either order it in or they might have a copy already. So uh, main, main place to get it is basically Amazon. That's probably the easiest and the most efficient. And I should say, where can people find out more about your work? So if people are interested in my work, uh, they can have a look online at, at my webpage on the UCL website. So that's University College London uh, on my on my webpage there. Uh, that lists everything I've published. Um, if you're interested in my earlier book, it was on violence against prisoners of war in the First World War. And it was comparing prisoner treatment in Britain, France and Germany. Um, and so that was a really key comparative study to show the extent of mistreatment, uh, particularly happening in the German case and to a lesser extent in the French. Heather, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>